What was that? (laughs) Honestly, that's what we hope to capture in this season. We hope to capture, recapture maybe, the wonder of the Christmas season. We hope to remember what it's really all about. And for us, this Christmas season, we are taking these four weeks before Christmas, and we're intentionally asking the why about some things. We're asking, why do we celebrate the way that we celebrate? Um, Why do we feel the way we feel? Some of us are excited and joyful. Some of us are anxious and depressed. What causes these things? And, And then what does the Christmas story have to say about who we are and how we celebrate. Now, let me ask this question. Um, what are some Christmas traditions that you have um, that you've maybe inherited from your family or uh, become a part of the way that you celebrate uh, that maybe you've never paused to think, why do we do this? Uh, one that I always think about is, I don't know when this started, but I remember probably starting to do it in maybe high school or something. It's called the White Elephant Gift Exchange. Has anybody ever done that before? I, I can't think of anything that captures the Christmas spirit more than giving somebody, somebody opening a gift and other people going, hmm, I think I'm going to steal that. <laughs> right? Oh, I like that one. It's pretty silly. Obviously, it's harmless, but it maybe doesn't quite line up with the, with the spirit, the true spirit of Christmas. Um, what about Elf on a Shelf? Does anybody do Elf on a Shelf? Any parents out there and you're already regretting it? It's like every night I have to figure out a new pose to put this thing in. If you don't know what Elf on a Shelf is, just Google it. You'll see some crazy stuff. What about Christmas lights? How many people put some Christmas lights up in their house? And yeah, Oh, there's some quick hands that went up, right? Uh, one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid is we would go on a Christmas light drive. And, uh, and we, knew that we knew the streets that were going to really go for it. And I loved the, the, the things that um, people would come up with in their creativity and setting up Christmas lights. Uh, there's, a, there's a legend, and I don't know how true it is, but that one of the... the Um, reformers of the church, Martin Luther, first had the idea for lights in a Christmas tree when he was walking home one evening from a church worship service, and he looked up through the evergreens, and he saw the stars shining through him. And we got home to his family. He he wanted to to convey the beauty and the wonder that he experienced on his walk home, and so he put candles in an evergreen tree. And so, obviously, that's pretty dangerous. Um, but for years, that's how people would light their Christmas tree. And for years, insurance companies would say, we're not going to cover any fires that result in you uh, lighting your Christmas tree. So whatever your tradition is, um, our hope is that we look at our traditions and we use them to point us to the true meaning of Christmas. And so we're doing a series uh, through Christmas called Advent Conspiracy. And last week, we, we looked at the the response that Mary had when she found out that she was going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And her response was joy. It was to worship fully. And in her response, she goes, of all the people that God could choose to use, he would use me. He would see me in my humility and my obscurity, that God would see me and love me and choose me. And we talked about how, what changes in our hearts when we realize that the God of the universe sees us in the same way he sees Mary, that he knows us and loves us. So Advent conspiracy, this Advent, as Aaron already explained earlier, is this idea of waiting for something. So what's conspiracy? Well, conspiracy is a, a secret plan. 
And so when we think about Advent conspiracy, we think about the story of Christmas. There was a secret plan. There was a plan for God to come down to earth as a baby. For God to limit himself as creator to the form of creation. And so when was this conspiracy, when was this plan hatched? Listen to this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so right from Isaiah 9, we see that there was a plan that had been set in motion, and it goes on to say this, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the prophets of old spoke of this coming Messiah. Micah 5.2 even says that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so there was this plan from the beginning to make things right. And the amazing thing is these words were written 700 years before Jesus would be born. The prophets spoke of the coming Messiah. And Jesus' birth fulfilled those prophecies. So there was a, a longing for this Messiah. And long, a longing for the fulfillment of these prophecies that have been passed down from generation to generation. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't show up like a superhero flying in to save the day. He didn't ride into town like a knight in shining armor. He didn't rally an army to overthrow the Romans. Jesus' mom came quietly into town. She gave birth to him in a stable, and she lay him in a feeding trough. What we're going to see today is that the arrival of Jesus was subversive, and it was a, this rebellious act against the ruling authority and the culture of its day. And as believers today, if we're going to properly celebrate Christmas with all of our traditions, we just may need to tap into the subversiveness of the Christmas story. The rebellion, so to speak, that Jesus' birth would bring about. And so as we jump into our second week of Advent Conspiracy, our theme is today is spend less. Spend less. And you'll see why that's our theme. If you have your Bible today, open up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible in the pews in front of you, there's Bibles that look just like this, and you can just skip right to page 828, 828. If you thought the story of Jesus was innocuous, if you thought it was just about a, a little baby laying in a manger, if you thought it was just an avenue to to give gifts and to, to eat a lot of food on Christmas, then our text today shows that there was something much bigger going on, much more threatening in the birth of Jesus. Let's read together Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, so this is after Jesus' birth, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Why is that? We'll find out in a little bit. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And here they quote Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out for them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, what do you think Herod's intentions were? Anybody know the story? They were not good intentions. Whenever I read this story, I read uh, Herod with a, like an evil British voice, because that's in growing up, that's like all the bad guys in movies have evil British voices. Sorry if you're from England, I love you. Um, not a reflection on you, that's just the way I'm wired. So, what's going on in this story? Jesus has already been born. So, if you have a nativity and the wise men are up here at the stable, at the manger, sorry, that's not accurate. Jesus has already been born. In fact, this, some, some people estimate that this is up to two years later, at least probably a year later that the magi, the wise men, had come. Now, now, who were these wise men? Most likely, there were probably more than three of them. It, the scripture doesn't actually say how many there were. It just says that they were bringing how many gifts? Three gifts. Gold and two essential oils. Frankincense and myrrh. <laughs> Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, they were traveling. They had traveled from some distance because they saw this star, but where they lived in the east, it took months to travel to Jerusalem. So they've been traveling. They have gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are worth a ton of money. Chances are, however many there were, there was more than three because in that day, you're going to get robbed if you had those, that type of treasure and there were just three of you. So most likely they had a pretty sizable entourage as they were traveling. Most likely these three magi were pagan philosophers or astrologists. They had seen the star. They were astronomer types. And they're probably from a priestly or a ruling class of their particular Eastern culture. And they've come into Jerusalem looking for one who is king of the Jews. People are going to take notice of this. Now Herod was who? He was the current king set up by the Roman Empire to oversee Palestine, this region where Jesus was born. He hears this, and as we just read, he's deeply troubled. Along with who? The rest of the ruling class in Jerusalem. Uh-oh, what's about to happen? These guys came all this way. Something must be legit. And it's good to note the term here that says all Jerusalem. So that would have also included some of the religious leadership. Some of those very same people who knew the prophets 
knew what the words of Isaiah and Micah said, they were also troubled about what was about to occur. So Harold assembles these Hebrew scholars to verify what's happening. They find the prophecy from Micah 5.2 in which a ruler is to come out of Bethlehem, and they let Herod know. So Herod calls these three wise men in secret, and what does he say? He says, hey, go search for the child as best as you can, and, and as soon as you find him, be sure and send word of his exact location so that I may worship him. Now, if this sounds fishy, it's because it is. First, Herod is deeply troubled with all those who are in power in Jerusalem. And the next moment, he's basically saying, be sure to tell me where this new king is so I can worship him. What? Something doesn't add up here. Deeply troubled, I want to know where he is. Where is this new king? This is a lie. He doesn't want to worship him. Later, we see that he actually wants to destroy the child. He wants to kill him. He wants to make sure it happens. Basically, Herod's not a good guy. Now, we know actually quite a bit about his, um, Herod historically. There's been lots of Jewish historians that have written around this time, and we have those ancient manuscripts that talk about Rome and talk about the wisdom of Rome and the structure of Rome and the history of Rome. One such historian is named Josephus, and his writings have survived for generations. And Josephus, in his writings, actually gives a quick sketch of Herod. You won't find this in the Bible, but again, in manuscripts that were written around the same time as the Bible. And Josephus, you, you could sum up his explanation of Herod with words like, impressive. Herod, Herod was effective. He was successful. Herod's kingdom was one of size and wealth. He worked in relationship with Rome, but he ruled Palestine. With Rome's permission, he kept the peace in Palestine, and he built like a madman. He was an entrepreneur, real estate mogul. In a lot of ways, what he was building mirrored the size and power of Rome, just on a little bit smaller scale. But Herod didn't want to be even outdone by Rome. He had seven palaces, many of those that they have found today. All of them were larger than what Caesar had. Herod ruled Palestine for 34 years, and his crowning achievement in his building empire was he rebuilt the temple of the Jews that had been destroyed. Now you'd wonder why Herod, who's not a Jew, didn't believe in God, why would he go to the length to rebuild a, a beautiful temple, a place of worship that was significant for the Jews, the very same Jews that were in occupied territory? Well, part of the brilliance of Herod and what kept him in power was that he gave religious crowds exactly what they wanted. What do you want? I'll give it to you. Because he knew as a successful leader... That for him, peace meant appeasement. For him to be accepted by all the people that he ruled over, to guard against revolts, give the people what they want. Be on their side for all intents and purposes. And so specifically for Herod, a rebuilt temple was that. 
Oh, we can ignore the way Herod lives. We can ignore the, the atrocities that he commits. We can ignore his pride and his greed and the words that come out of his mouth because he gave us a temple. I mean, isn't that what's most important? The problem is, leaders like this, like Herod, they have some deep-seated issues in their heart. Herod eventually became super paranoid. He became a tyrant who ended up killing three of his own sons on suspicion of treason, putting to death his favorite wife of ten wives, killing one of his mothers-in-laws, drowning a high priest, and killing several uncles and a couple of cousins. You think your family gatherings are tough during the Christmas, right? Historians also talk about Herod's plot to kill a stadium of Jewish leaders so that people would mourn when he died. They didn't care if they were mourning for him, just mourn in general. A famous quote from Caesar himself about Herod was, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. So Herod here is a great picture of lust and greed and power a desire for more and more. Herod had everything, but it wasn't enough. He had everything, but he felt like he had nothing. Which is still a theme that plays out in the hearts of humanity today. Maybe you've heard this quote from Jim Carrey, who's a famous actor, has it all, has had it all, been at the top. Jim Carrey says this, I lost it. Sorry. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. (laughs) How many people do we aspire to be like? Do we wish, oh, I wish I just had a little bit of what they've got. And yet what we find out is that doesn't fulfill. Oh, just, just just a little bit more money. Just a little bit bigger house. Just a little more influence in my work and my ministry and my circle of friends. This was Herod. And this is a curse that is on so many of us. For Herod, his life was defined by anxiety and fear. Does that sound a little familiar? How many of us can relate to that same feeling, that same motivation? Are you motivated by anxiety and fear? I know there's been times where I have been. And it's funny how those things go together. Having everything, and yet because of fear and anxiety, you actually have nothing. You feel empty. You could be the wealthiest, most powerful person in the world and still be dominated by anxiety and fear to the point it chokes out life all around you. Herod had no problem building temples to God, but he never knew God. Because he had believed a lie that only one person could fulfill his deepest desires and needs. And that one person was himself. It's up to me. And the sickness that Herod had is still spread 
today. We see it in our political leaders. We see it in our entertainment figures, in our sports celebrities. And then we're surprised when they fall. We're surprised when their anxiety and their fear is exposed through the words that they speak and through the actions that they take. But what we're actually exposed to is the fact that they have it all and they have nothing. Later on, Jesus addresses this in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus, grown Jesus now, would say, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? The essence of who you are. Now, compare Herod to Mary and Joseph for a moment. They have their baby in a barn, and yet they truly have it all. They have the one through whom all things are made. They are bringing the life of God into the world, and yet not many people are paying attention. They have no fame, no buildings, no power, and yet they are part of the most important moment in history so far. To this day, history hinges on this birth. Before Christ, after Christ. And here's the deep irony of our current cultural moment during the Christmas season. And I feel like Thanksgiving captures this so well. On one day, we're celebrating all that we have. On the next day, we're running to stores. Actually, it's not even the next day anymore. It's that afternoon to get as much as we can. This onslaught of wanting and buying more and more comes on thick on the very day that we celebrate the impoverished birth of our God. The story's been, let's be honest, the story of Jesus has been hijacked. Oh, you have a religious celebration? Where? We want to come worship too. And corporations use the holiday to make as much money as they possibly can. The spirit of Herod's still alive, isn't it? The story has been hijacked. And the church, who should know the story better than anybody else, is just as susceptible to the tactics of Herod today. Oh, I'll give you what you want. <laughs> I don't know God, but I'll give you what you want. Think about this. If you complain about your salary today, remember that over 3 billion people live on less than $2.5 a day. My old iPad 2 <laughs> represents almost a year's worth of their salary. 3 billion people. If you own a car, you're in the top 10% of the world's richest people. If you, could wish, if you wish you could buy more things for your kids this holiday season, remember how blessed you are that your kids aren't one of the over 8,000 kids who died of starvation today. Three million a year. The next time you flush the toilet, think about what nearly a billion people don't have access to. Clean water. Every 90 seconds, a child is dying due to water-related diseases. This Christmas season, 
700 plus billion is going to be spent on celebrating Christmas. Some estimates have it as much as a trillion dollars. It would take 10 billion dollars to provide safe water worldwide and save the lives of countless children. Something's wrong, right? Something is wrong in the consumeristic side of our culture. They don't want to worship. Having it all, having more and more doesn't mean having life. It's why we believe that Christmas is actually a time to spend less on the things that don't matter and more on the things that do. So don't get me wrong. I am not trying to make you feel guilty about buying presents for your family, okay? That is not what I'm trying to do it. Do it well. Bless people in your life. But don't get caught up in your own heart and perpetuate that to others, that having stuff means you will have joy. That attaining power and prestige and influence and whatever is going to do away with your anxiety and with your fear. The message in our culture today is hauntingly familiar. A paranoid leader saying, show me where the baby is so I can worship him too. A leader that will use any kind of rhetoric, even the language of worship, to get what he wants. And right after this, this paranoid leader would create a policy based on his fear and anxiety that would result in the death of a village of children. If you don't know the story, the wise men leave. They have a dream not to trust this leader. Herod finds out, and he goes, how old is this kid approximately? Let's kill all the kids that are that age. Genocide would be committed. At the heart of the Christmas story is a baby. A baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man around that he would go to those lengths. Now, is Christmas starting to sound a little more dangerous? The original Christmas story? Yeah. Listen to what happens here. It says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And here's your little Christmas trivia, right? On coming to the manger... No, it doesn't say that, right? Coming to the house. So that would be like step two of your nativity scene, like act two. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So just in summation, just to get this straight, even the religious establishment is in cahoots with this supreme leader. Yet those who find Jesus are truth-seeking pagan philosophers. They're roughneck shepherds on the edge of society working the night watch. So if you want to find God in the story of your life today, 
Don't go to the temple built by the king for the religious establishment. You have to go to the barn to find him. Not all is as it seems. As the religious crowds follow the power and fame of Herod six miles away in a barn, the king is found by those paying attention. So let's be reminded here that even religious people that knew the prophecies could miss the story of Jesus, miss the essence of what was happening, miss his arrival because they weren't looking. They weren't anticipating. They weren't expectant that God would fulfill his promises. What about us today? If you don't feel like the right kind of Christian, you're in good company. Because the right kind of Christian in this story is on the wrong side of history. The religious establishment sided with Herod and his empire, and they missed Jesus. And so the story of Christmas, to recapture it today, it invites us to seek the truth. To be discerning when religion and power begin to mingle together. When the words of the empire mimic the words of Scripture, do our radars go up? The Christmas story calls us to not be satisfied with just goods and services, but to look in the -the out-of-the-way places to see what God might be doing. One of my favorite verses, Philippians says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What's the secret? Tell me the secret. What do I have to do to get the secret? I can do all this through him, Jesus, who gives me strength. Jesus is the secret. And this year, we invite you to ignore the signs and the symbols of the empire. And we invite you to not give in to the advertisers and corporation that really don't want to worship. But will use the language of Christmas to lure us into spending more. And instead, we invite you to spend less on the things that don't mean as much. And to give more meaningful gifts. Gifts of our time and of our presence. So I want to encourage you today, don't wait. Don't say, I'm too old. All our traditions are set. We've always been doing things this way. To take a moment today and to reexamine your heart in the Christmas story. To ask yourself, have I been swung so far over into the commercialism and the, 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 the language of the empire that, that I've lost sight of what this is to be about? And as a family, to talk and pray about how you can spend in a way of your time and of your talents and of your gifts that communicates the gospel. Your time, your talent, your money. To think about, wow, I could give toward something that reflects the heart of Jesus. Of the $700 billion that's spent on Christmas, I could take just even a small portion And help somebody that's in need. 
On our website, you'll find under the resources tab um, some places that you could give that would help these same kids that we mentioned that are in need, both in our community and overseas. Every Sunday in Advent, we do Advent reading as a family. I mentioned last week we started this as just a, a pushback against the wave of presents that was coming into our house from relatives all over the world, literally. And we realized, wow, what are our kids going to remember 10, 20 years from now about Christmas? Just the endless presence, the me, me, me? Or are they going to remember the, what the true story is about? And it's a challenge. And we still give gifts. And they're under the tree right now. <laughs> but we also have set times in our family to, to reflect on the Christmas story every Sunday evening. And then we give. We choose a place to give each week. And we connect that to the why of the Christmas story. So we believe that as we do this as a church, as we celebrate Christmas, we can be a part of God still changing the world. We can be a part of this subversive nature of the story of Christ. So as we go today, as we close with our last song, may you recognize that having it all is not having it all. And in recognizing that truth, may your seeking lead you to Jesus. And may you be captured in the wonder, the star of wonder, of this different king who is grace and truth. And may you take great joy that the center of the world, at the center of the world is a God who comes as a baby to bring peace on earth. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. You did not come, Lord, to condemn the world, but to save it. That your arrival, as unheralded as it was and as humble as it was, it was radical. And it's still radical today, Lord. And so, Father, as we reflect on the, on the true meaning of this season, would you lead us back to that day in the manger? Would you lead us back to that story, the essence of that story? And the truth that it brings with us. Thank you for loving us, God, right where we're at. Thank you for providing what we need. And Lord, may we be people that reflect the Christmas truth in this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand as we sing this last song.